I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I've got some new Patreon supporters to thank. Allie P., Lauren P., Eugenia W., Crystal M., and Hannah. Thank you all so much for your support. Some of your dollars will be going to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute when I make my next donation about a month from now. I also want to remind anyone who's planning to attend CrimeCon in May, make sure to use promo code MADNESS2020 for 10% off a standard badge. That's Madness 2020. If you're jonesing for a new podcast to binge, stick around after my closing comments at the end of this episode to hear a promo for my friend's podcast called Bloody Murder. Lastly, I need to warn you that this episode contains discussions regarding domestic violence and stalking. Please take care and use discretion before listening. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. On January 6th of 2018, law enforcement arrived at a home located at 1306 Idaho Street in Belgrade, Montana. Inside, they discovered a woman who had barricaded herself behind her bedroom door, and she was pleading for help. She was barely alive. Upon further investigation, law enforcement found the body of a woman who had not survived. As details of the crimes unfolded, law enforcement would learn that the killer had a very unlikely and unwilling accomplice. Join me as I walk you through the murder case of victim Lauren DeWeiss.
This case takes us to Belgrade, Montana, located in Gallatin County, about 90 miles from Yellowstone National Park. Belgrade, Montana began as a farming town during the Depression. After the Second World War, the town experienced growth as new businesses were established and other businesses expanded. The town has always had a solid public school system and a closeness among residents. Known to be a tight-knit, family-friendly town, Belgrade was voted number 15 out of 41 of the best places to live, according to Niche.com. In January of 2018, the mostly quiet town would be the scene of a heinous crime. A crime that shared details in common with an alarming trend which was on the rise in Belgrade. On the morning of January 7th of 2018, Audrea Butler returned to her home at 1306 Idaho Street in Belgrade, Montana. Audrea, who worked as a physical trainer, shared the home she owned with two roommates, 32-year-old Ashley Van Hemert and 35-year-old Lauren DeWeiss. Audrea, who left the house the night before around 9.30 p.m. to spend the evening with her boyfriend, arrived back home around 9 a.m. the following morning. On the morning of January 7th, Audrea parked her car in the garage and walked into the house. Upon entering her home, Audrea noticed right away that there were broken pieces of wood on the floor that came from the frame of the back door, which appeared to have been kicked in. Audrea also noticed footprints in the snow outside the back door. The footprints, according to Audrea, did not appear to be from either of her roommates as they were too large in size. Audrea immediately ran upstairs to check on her roommates. She entered Lauren's bedroom first. Standing in the doorway of Lauren's bedroom, Audrea said she knew right away that Lauren was dead as she lay motionless in her bed with blood surrounding her body. Panicked and terrified by this time, Audrea turned around and went into Ashley's bedroom to check on her. When she got into Ashley's bedroom, she found her roommate lying on the floor, severely injured and pleading for help. Afraid the killer might still be in the house, Audrea ran to a neighbor's house to get help. The neighbor, Charles Barth, immediately called 911. Gallatin County sheriffs and Belgrade police officers arrived at the home shortly after the 911 call. Sheriff's Deputy Eric Frankie and police officers Jared Robinson, John Owens, and Sergeant Dave Keene arrived at Audrea's home and went inside. The Central Valley Fire Department were dispatched to the scene as well. Upon checking on both of the victims, Fire Department staff pronounced 35-year-old Lauren DeWeiss dead at the scene. It was apparent that she had suffered significant injuries to her head. Lauren's roommate, Ashley, was in bad shape and needed to be tended to right away. When she was found, Ashley had been lying on her back in front of her bedroom door. She was calling out for help. Deputy Frankie carried Ashley outside of the home in order for medical care to be administered. Ashley, who also suffered serious injuries to her head, was soon airlifted from Montana to UC Health in Aurora, Colorado. Once admitted to UC Health, Ashley underwent emergency surgery for her injuries, which included gunshot wounds to her head, injuries to her right carotid artery, right ulna, and upper right chest. 
She also had broken ribs, a punctured lung, and a fracture to the right side of her scapula, or shoulder blade. While in the hospital, Ashley suffered two strokes, one while she was in surgery. She spent three weeks being treated and recovering in the trauma intensive care unit. According to a 2018 ABC Fox Montana article, during the time that Ashley was in the hospital, her sister, Carissa, said the family's faith in God was getting them through the shocking ordeal. In that same article, Carissa was quoted as saying about her sister, She's stubborn, so we know she'll get through this. Just a week after the murder of Lauren DeWeiss and attempted murder of Ashley Van Hemert, a business network called Biz to Biz Bozeman put together a fundraiser. Money from the fundraiser went toward a memorial fund in Lauren's name, as well as Ashley's medical expenses, which were exorbitant. Among other things, Ashley now needed a device to help her walk. A GoFundMe account was also set up for a three-year-old girl. Lauren DeWeiss, who was brutally murdered as she slept in her bed, was the mother of a little girl named Jennifer. Ladies, if you love gold jewelry like I do, this segment is for you. All Rate is a fine jewelry company founded by women for women. I recently bought the mini charm pyramid necklace and the stackable ring from All Rate, and I haven't taken either of them off since. Both the necklace and the ring are made of solid 14 karat gold, so I never have to take them off in the shower or while I'm working out. In fact, all of All Rate's gold pieces are made of real gold, so no more green marks on your skin after wearing certain jewelry. The two pieces of All Rate jewelry that I've been wearing are so pretty and feminine, and they go with every outfit from casual to dressy. Someone said the other day that the pyramid pendant on my All Rate necklace sparkled like a diamond when the sun hit it just right. Not only is All Rate's jewelry ethically sourced, they give a book to a child in need for every piece they sell. For 15% off your first All Rate purchase, Go to allrightnewyork.com slash murderish and use promo code murderish. That's A-U-R-A-T-E newyork.com slash murderish and use code murderish for 15% off your first all-rate purchase. Car repairs are always a headache. Even if you have insurance, there are almost always out-of-pocket expenses that break the bank. That's where Endurance Total Vehicle Protection comes in. Not only does Endurance offer an auto advocate who will negotiate the best prices on your behalf, they're rated number one vehicle protection plan by Consumer Affairs. When I was in an auto accident years ago, I remember being frustrated by how little of the costs my insurance covered. With Endurance, I'm protected from the high auto repair costs not to mention the stress that's relieved knowing that I have total vehicle protection. Right now, Endurance is offering their elite membership with every plan, meaning that you'll get 24-7 roadside assistance, key fob replacement, a personal concierge, and tire repair. But don't wait because that upgrade offer won't be available for long. For more information about Endurance's vehicle protection plans, visit endurancenow.com murderish. That's endurancenow.com slash murderish. We all have to stand in long lines sometimes, so why not engage your brain while you wait? I've been playing a game called Best Fiends, 
which is a fun puzzle game where you can collect cute characters and keep your brain stimulated. My teenager and I have been competing, and sadly, she took the lead recently. Not to worry, I'm carving out time during every commercial break to play Best Fiends while watching my favorite shows so I can get back in the lead. You can put the game down whenever you want, and it's so easy to pick back up wherever you left off. I am by no means a gamer, but this fun game is right up my alley. Once you start playing, it's hard to stop. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. At the Montana Crime Lab, an autopsy was performed on Lauren's body by Dr. Aldo Fusero. The examination uncovered that Lauren was shot numerous times and struck in her arm, chest, and head. Her death was determined to be from multiple gunshot wounds, and the manner of death was homicide. Lauren DeWeiss, born Lauren Deborah Walder, was born on March 26, 1982, in Lakeland, Florida, to parents Robert Walder and Deborah Kriegner. Lauren and her brother, Tristan Walder, were raised in New Jersey, where Lauren attended and played varsity softball at Ewing High School. After graduating high school in 2000, Lauren enrolled in courses at Monmouth University in New Jersey. She eventually transferred to the University of West Florida, Pensacola, graduating in 2005. Prior to graduating from college, Lauren got married to a man named Nathan Franklin. The relationship, however, ended in divorce. In 2008, Lauren got married a second time to a man named Paul DeWeiss. This marriage would make Lauren a stepmother, as Paul had two children from a previous marriage. Paul and Lauren resided in Florida, where both of them worked as teachers at Jim C. Bailey Middle School in Pensacola. After several years of marriage, Lauren became pregnant, and she and Paul welcomed a baby girl into the world, whom they named Jennifer. While Jennifer was still a baby, Paul and Lauren bought an RV and decided to take their family on the road. Paul, Lauren, baby Jennifer, and Paul's children, Natalie and Joseph, ages 7 and 5, got into the family's RV and began traveling throughout the Southwest and Western states. By 2015, the DeWeiss family had planted roots in Bozeman, Montana, where Lauren began working in the ER administration department at a local hospital and then at Rocky Mountain Bank in Plains, Montana. Lauren eventually received a promotion to manager and transferred to a location of Rocky Mountain Bank in Bozeman, Montana. According to online condolences for Lauren, a former employer described Lauren as a dynamic leader in the business world and said she was fearless, full of energy and life, strong and vibrant. People remember Lauren for her caring nature and enthusiasm she exuded as a middle school teacher. Lauren loved her daughter and had a very sweet and warm nature, according to those who knew her. Ashley Van Hemer was born on September 25th of 1985 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The oldest of eight children, Ashley was very athletic. In high school, she played soccer, ran cross-country and track, and sang in the choir. Today, she still holds numerous athletic records from Sioux Falls Christian High School. After graduating high school, Ashley moved to Montana and lived in the Bozeman area for nine years prior to the shooting. 
Ashley worked at Bozeman Health Deaconess Hospital as a certified nursing assistant. Ashley and her Alaskan Malamute, Bronson, were always together, often enjoying outdoor activities together. Ashley, who loves the outdoors, often went hiking, skiing, and running. Those who know Ashley describe her as being quick-witted, as having a giving spirit, and a big personality. In 2014, Ashley went on a mission trip to Ethiopia. Today, she continues to sponsor a child she met during that trip. Ashley has maintained a strong Christian faith throughout her life, which would come into play during the trial of her alleged attacker. Two years after making Bozeman, Montana their home, Paul and Lauren's marriage began to unravel. In late 2017, Lauren moved out of their home and began living with two female roommates at a home in Belgrade, Montana. The home was owned by Lauren's friend and physical trainer, Audrea Butler. After Lauren opened up to Audrea about serious issues in her marriage, Audrea offered Lauren a room at her house. Ashley Van Hemer was already living with Audrea at the time Lauren moved in. Just two months after Lauren moved into the home with Audrea and Ashley, Ashley would be left severely wounded and Lauren would be dead. After Lauren and Ashley were shot, the Gallatin County Sheriff's Office and the Belgrade Police Department began investigating the crimes. Given the circumstances, investigators believed this may have been a targeted attack with Lauren or Ashley being the intended target. Fairly early in the investigation, investigators interviewed Ashley's boyfriend, Ralph Dennis. On the night of January 6th of 2018, Dennis had picked up Ashley from the home on Idaho Street around 7 p.m. He told investigators that he and Ashley enjoyed an evening out, and then he dropped her off at the home around 11.30 p.m., based on what they knew about the crimes early on. Investigators considered Dennis a person of interest, and they continued looking into him as a potential suspect. As they continued to investigate, however, law enforcement concluded that Dennis was not involved in the crimes, and he was ruled out as a suspect. Although investigators weren't certain whether this was a random crime, no signs of burglary were found, and neither of the victims had been sexually assaulted. The motive seemed to be more of a vendetta against one or both of the victims, a targeted attack. It seemed the perpetrator broke into the home, shot both women, and then left. As the investigation progressed, a common narrative began to unravel. More than one person whom law enforcement interviewed said they saw signs that Lauren DeWeiss may have been physically abused. When investigators interviewed Lauren and Ashley's roommate, Audrea, she told them that during her training sessions with Lauren, she had noticed bruises on her body. When she confronted Lauren about the bruises, Lauren initially told Audrea that she had run into something. As their friendship grew, Lauren confided in Audrea, telling her that Paul had been hitting her. According to Audrea, Lauren said she wanted to leave her husband due to the abuse. At this time, Audrea said she offered to help telling Lauren she could stay at her house away from Paul. At first, Lauren declined Audrea's offer, but the two women remained in close contact. 
Audrey had told investigators that she and Lauren met up shortly after the time she offered to let Lauren stay with her. During this meeting, Audrey said that Lauren had a black eye. In November of 2017, Audrey received a text message from Lauren. She was ready to take her up on her offer. That same month, Lauren left Paul and moved in with Audrey and Ashley. According to Audrey, just prior to Lauren moving in with her, she and Paul had gotten into an argument, and that's when Lauren told Paul she wanted a divorce. The morning after Lauren moved out of the home she shared with Paul, Audrey said that Lauren received over 30 text messages from Paul. She told investigators that at the time the text messages were coming in, Paul was standing outside of her home, banging on the front door with his fist. Lauren sent text messages back to Paul, telling him he was not allowed to come near Audrey's house. Prior to that incident, and just before Lauren moved in with Audrey, Paul had sent numerous messages to Audrey through Facebook. In the messages, which were sent between September 1st and September 10th of 2017, Paul told Audrey he didn't like that she and Lauren had developed a friendship. He told Audrey that she was not a good influence on his wife and that he believed she was encouraging Lauren to live the single life. In the messages, Paul pleaded with Audrey to stop contacting his wife. Apparently, Lauren had cheated on Paul during their marriage and he blamed Audrey for his wife's infidelity. Audrey chose not to respond to any of Paul's Facebook messages. Friends and co-workers of Lauren's were interviewed during the investigation, and while all of them were heartbroken over their loss, none of them seemed to be surprised by the crime. Mostly all of them told investigators that they too had seen bruises on Lauren's body on numerous occasions. Some of them reported that Lauren had opened up to them, telling them that Paul was abusing her. Friends and co-workers said that Lauren told them she was afraid of her husband and that he had threatened her life if she ever tried to leave him. Three days before Lauren and Ashley were attacked, Lauren had attended a birthday party for her daughter, Jennifer, who was turning four years old. Lauren told Audrey that the birthday party, which was held at Paul's house, was very tense. According to Audrey, Lauren told her that while she was at the party, Paul continually questioned her, asking her when she was going to move back in with their family. Audrey said that Lauren told Paul she was not going to move back in with him and that she and Paul were scheduled to meet the morning of January 7th, the same morning Lauren's body was found, to discuss their divorce and necessary paperwork. Audrey said that as she was getting ready to leave the house the night of January 6th, Lauren was getting out of the bath and shared with Audrey that since moving in with her, she was very happy and felt safer than she had in a very long time. Lauren's statements made it clear that she was not aware of the impending danger. Lauren would be dead just hours after making these statements to her roommate. I cannot say enough about Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants. No, they're not yoga pants that you wear to work. They're stylish, well-made work pants that feel like yoga pants. Beta Brand's pants are built stronger than yoga pants, and you can take them from the office to happy hour or anywhere. These pants stay wrinkle-free, and trust me, 
I have put them to the test and I no longer have to be distracted by uncomfortable clothes at work. Beta Brand also offers a premium denim pant that are flexible and comfortable like your favorite pair of yoga pants. On the Beta Brand website, you can choose from a variety of colors and styles like bootcut, skinny, and cigarette pants. Beta Brand is your exit strategy to get away from ill-fitting and uncomfortable work pants. Right now, Murderish listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash murderish. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 20% off. I recently found a more convenient way to get counseling. BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, anger, family conflicts, and LGBTQ matters. The best part is that you can connect with your counselor from the comfort of your own home. And of course, anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp makes counseling so easy and convenient. You can do secure phone sessions or chat with your counselor by text. If you want to switch counselors for any reason, you can do so at no charge. BetterHelp is a convenient and affordable option for anyone seeking counseling. Murderish listeners can get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com murderish and entering promo code murderish. That's betterhelp.com murderish and use promo code murderish for 10% off your first month. Hearing from multiple people that Lauren showed signs of abuse and that she had confided in some people, saying that Paul had abused her, investigators began searching for Paul so they could question him. The same day that the victims were found, Bozeman police caught up with Paul DeWeiss as he was driving home from church near his home in Bozeman. On January 7th of 2018, police spotted Paul driving a Toyota RAV4 which was registered to Lauren DeWeiss. Around 10.28 that morning, Bozeman police pulled Paul over, and when they approached the vehicle, officers could see that all three of Paul's children, Natalie, 17 years old, Joseph, 15, and Jennifer, 4 years old, were in the car with him. Police detained Paul and brought him to the Gallatin County Law and Justice Center for questioning. His three children were taken to the Gallatin County Child Advocacy Center where a social worker conducted a forensic interview with each of them. During the forensic interviews, the older children, Natalie and Joseph, said that they were with their dad on the evening of January 6th and the early morning hours of the following day. They told the social worker that they watched movies with their dad the night of the 6th at his home located at 117 Silver Maple Drive in Bozeman, which was only minutes away from Audrea Butler's house. Joseph said that around midnight, he went with his dad to a town pump convenience store to buy beer. Joseph said that he and his dad came back home and continued watching TV until around 2 in the morning. Both Natalie and Joseph said their dad put Jennifer to bed sometime before they went to bed around 2 a.m. Natalie and Joseph said they didn't see their dad again until 8 in the morning when they entered his bedroom to make sure he was up in time for church. Once they arrived at the Justice Center, sheriffs read Paul his Miranda rights, at which time he waived his right to an attorney. 
At the onset of the interview, Paul asked what the interview was about. The detectives told him that someone had forced their way into Lauren's home and murdered her. At this time, Paul claimed to be experiencing a panic attack, and he was rubbing his hands on his legs. He was able to snap out of it fairly quickly, and then Paul began to tell detectives about the night in question. As his older children had told a social worker, Paul said that he was spending time with his three children the day and the evening of January 6th. He said he had been hoping that Lauren would come by, so he made some soup for lunch. He mentioned the trip with Joseph to a convenience store around midnight and said he went to bed around 2 a.m. after drinking three beers. Paul said he and the kids woke up that morning and went to church around 8 a.m. Paul told detectives that he owned numerous guns, which included various caliber pistols and rifles. When confronted by detectives about his possible involvement in Lauren's murder, Paul said on numerous occasions that he had no involvement in the crime. Detectives asked Paul about the numerous text messages he often sent to Lauren. Records showed that Paul had sent numerous text messages to Lauren the evening before her body was found. Paul had sent a text to Lauren around 2 a.m. that read, Good night. Lauren never responded. Paul later said that he was angry about not receiving a response to that message. Paul told detectives that his marriage to Lauren began going downhill during the past summer. He said he asked Lauren to move out of the house after he found out that she had cheated on him twice. When asked by detectives if he had ever lost his temper during his interactions with Lauren, Paul said he'd been mean to her and yelled at her, but that he never physically abused her. Paul said that actually, Lauren had gotten physical with him when she tried to kick him and shove him during an argument. Detectives then turned their attention to a shed located at Paul's house. When asked whether he had been inside the shed recently, Paul said that he had not. Detectives had received word from investigators who were conducting a search of Paul's house that they observed what appeared to be fresh shoe prints in the snow. Shoe prints that led to the entry of the shed. At the request of detectives, Paul agreed to allow a search of his cell phone. After a forensic evidence technician extracted data from Paul's phone, Numerous text messages sent to Lauren on January 6th were found. Paul's text messages to Lauren that night began with him trying to convince her to attend church with him and the kids the next morning. At 10.58 p.m., Lauren replied saying that she was not going to attend church with them. At 1.01 a.m. on January 7th, Paul sent texts to Lauren begging her to see him. Lauren didn't respond. At 2.58 a.m., about an hour after Paul said he went to bed, he sent another text to Lauren saying that he couldn't sleep, he missed her, and that he knew he shouldn't be texting her. During their investigation, detectives learned that the location services on Paul's cell phone had been turned off on December 28, 2017, about a week before Lauren was murdered. According to their findings, detectives could see that prior to that time, the location services on Paul's phone had been turned on. The location services on his phone were kept off until January 7th until shortly after 9 a.m., the morning Lauren and Ashley were found. Then, at about 9.15 a.m., the location services on Paul's phone were turned back on near the Mormon church in Bozeman. 
On July 18, 1970, Joseph Paul DeWeiss, who later went by Paul, was born to parents Joseph DeWeiss and Carol Ann Hirsch. In 1974, Paul's mother was granted a divorce from her husband due to extreme cruelty and gross neglect. After their divorce, Carol Ann and her son moved to Alaska, where Paul would go on to attend A.J. Diamond High School in Anchorage. In high school, Paul was part of the ROTC program. After graduating in 1989, Paul enlisted in the Army and quickly completed the U.S. Army Airborne Course in Fort Benning, Georgia, earning a parachutist badge. In June of 1991, Paul married Maria Lopez, and the couple had two children together, Natalie and Joseph. The couple would eventually divorce, and by the late 1990s, Paul had moved to Florida where he met his next wife. In January of 2008, Paul married Lauren Deborah Walder, who was 12 years younger than him. The couple went on to have a baby together, who they named Jennifer. Four days after the attack on Ashley and Lauren, Paul DeWeiss was arrested and charged for the crimes on January 11th. The charges against him were deliberate homicide for Lauren DeWeiss's death and attempted deliberate homicide for the shooting of Ashley Van Hemert. One month after his arrest, Paul pleaded not guilty to all charges and was ordered to remain at the Gallatin County Jail on $1 million bail. The court ordered Paul not to contact victim Ashley Van Hemert, his children, or any other witnesses. On December 2nd of 2019, almost two years after the crimes occurred, Paul DeWeiss went on trial in the Gallatin County District Court in front of Judge Holly Brown. Trying the case were Gallatin County Prosecutor Jordan Salo and Chief Deputy County Attorney Eric Kitzmiller. The prosecution claimed that there was a long history of physical abuse in the DeWeiss marriage, with Paul inflicting injuries on Lauren. They claimed that Paul murdered Lauren because he was angry about her infidelity and that she had finally gathered the courage to leave him. Statistically, the time when abuse victims are attempting to leave their abusive partners is the most dangerous time. It's when they are at the greatest risk of being harmed. Annie DeWolf and Alex Jacoby, who represented Paul at trial, claimed that their client did not commit the crimes against Ashley and Lauren. They claimed that each of the three women who lived in the house had multiple exes who could have committed the crimes. Detectives, who were collectively referred to as the crime scene team, testified during trial about their findings at Audrea Butler's house the day the victims were found. Detectives and evidence techs from the crime scene team testified that at the crime scene, they observed boot prints in the snow, two separate sets, which were traveling to and from the east side of the house and leading to the back door near the kitchen. Audrea Butler testified that she had not been in the backyard on or around the day the crimes occurred, and she didn't believe that Ashley or Lauren had been either. Testimony from the crime scene team was that evidence of forced entry through the back door was present, as much of the latch side of the door was damaged, and numerous pieces of it were observed on the floor. The extent of damage to the door indicated that significant force was used to break the door from the outside. The crime scene team found four spent 22 caliber shell casings in Lauren's bedroom 
as well as one spent 22 caliber bullet under Lauren's bed, which she was lying on at the time she was shot and killed. Inside Ashley's room, the team found five spent 22 caliber shell casings and one spent 22 caliber bullet. The prosecution presented evidence from interviews conducted with Lauren's co-workers during the investigation. In the interviews, one co-worker told detectives that Lauren had confided in her about the abuse she suffered at Paul's hands. According to this co-worker's testimony, Lauren said she was afraid to leave Paul because he had threatened to kill her if she did. The co-worker testified about a time when she said Lauren came to work with a bruised eye, which had been caused by Paul, according to what Lauren told her. Lauren apparently told this co-worker that Paul would hit her when he became jealous and that she believed Paul was tracking her location through her cell phone. Another co-worker of Lauren's testified that he had been keeping a written log for two years, documenting Lauren and Paul's volatile relationship and bruises he had observed on Lauren's body. The prosecution also laid out for the jury evidence that Paul's employer, Alden Antonucci, had recently accompanied Paul to Walmart to purchase new work boots. Captain Peterson, who had taken a statement from Antonucci, went to Walmart afterward to compare various work boots the store had for sale. While there, Captain Peterson found a pair of men's Interceptor brand boots that had a similar tread pattern to the boot prints that were found at the crime scene. When he more closely compared the boots bought at Walmart to the impressions taken from the prints at the crime scene, Captain Peterson concluded that the two boot treads were consistent. Detective Kelly Sprinkle testified regarding evidence found at Paul DeWeiss's house. Sprinkle told the jury that she had helped recover four live 22 caliber rounds from a shed in Paul's backyard. She said these live, unfired rounds were consistent with those found inside both of the victim's bedrooms. Additional rounds consistent with those found at the crime scene were discovered inside of Paul's bedroom. Boot prints found in the snow at the crime scene and at Paul's house were consistent with one another. Also recovered from Paul's home was a magazine from a gun that matched the type of gun used during the crimes. Audrea Butler, who owned the home where the crimes occurred, testified for the prosecution. On the stand, Audrea said that prior to Lauren's death, she had scheduled an appointment for her to visit a domestic violence shelter called Haven. Audrea said on the stand that Lauren had confided in her about the abuse she suffered at the hands of her husband. According to a 2019 KRTV.com article by Cody Boyer, on the stand, Audrea remembered a time when Lauren said to her, Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something that I haven't shared with anybody before? I have been married for 10 years. My husband has been abusing me for a really long time. Ashley Van Hemert, who still suffered from the injuries she sustained from being shot several times, testified for the prosecution. Ashley told the jury that after she was shot, she had to learn how to do basic tasks all over again. She had to learn how to walk, hold objects, and do entry-level math. At the time of the trial, Ashley still did not have full use of her left arm and relied on the support of a walking device in order to walk. Ashley's testimony was powerful for the prosecution. 
as the jury got to see for themselves the damage that they claimed was caused by Paul DeWeiss. After Ashley testified, the prosecution still had two important but unlikely witnesses to call to the stand. The jury must have been surprised to see the next witness escorted into the courtroom. The prosecution called none other than Natalie DeWeiss, Paul's then 19-year-old daughter, to the stand. While Natalie had corroborated her dad's account of what happened the night her stepmother was murdered, Natalie now had a very different story to tell. On the stand, Natalie recalled how her father had abused Lauren during their marriage. She described her father as being controlling and violent and said that she was afraid of him. Natalie said on the day in question, January 6th of 2018, she and her brother went jogging in the morning. Around lunchtime, she made soup and said her father was watching a gory TV show at this time. She said that sometime in the evening, she helped her little sister, Jennifer, get ready for bed, and then she went to bed around 10 p.m. Early in the morning, the following day, Natalie told the jury that the lights in her bedroom suddenly turned on, and she saw her father standing in the doorway. According to a 2019 Bozeman Daily Chronicle online article by Shaylee Rager, Natalie said that as her father stood in her bedroom doorway, he said that he had done something bad, that he killed Lauren. Natalie said on the stand that as her father drove her and her siblings to church that morning, he instructed her not to tell anyone what he had done and to act normal. Given that they were all afraid of their father, Natalie said that she and her siblings all obeyed him and told the same story to detectives as their father did. On cross-exam, the defense pushed back at Natalie, questioning why she had not told the truth from the beginning. Natalie responded saying that for years, her father manipulated her and made threats against her and her younger siblings. The defense told the jury that Natalie only changed her story under pressure from her mother, Paul's ex-wife, Maria Frazier. After denying the defense's claim, Natalie said on the stand that she just needed to tell the truth. Natalie's mother took the stand and also denied pressuring her children to say anything but the truth. On cross-exam, the defense inferred that because she allowed Paul to raise their children, Maria must have had trust in him. Frazier pushed back and told the defense that it wasn't that she trusted Paul. Her allowing him to raise their children was more motivated by a fear of her ex-husband. According to a 2019 Bozeman Daily article by Shaley Rager, Maria said on the stand, It wasn't so much that I trusted him, it was that I was afraid of him, that he would lash out at my children. Although Paul DeWeiss likely believed his children had turned on him during trial, the truth was that he had turned on them before the trial even began. During her testimony, Natalie DeWeiss recalled a phone conversation with her father while he was incarcerated, even though he was ordered not to contact his children. During their phone conversation, Natalie said that her father told her to tell her brother that he needed to tell authorities that he was the one who shot Ashley and Lauren that night. According to a 2018 Bozeman Daily Chronicle article by Whitney Burms, Natalie recalled her father saying during their phone call, 
it's real important that he admit it because if he admits it, then I get the fuck out of here. Understand? Joseph DeWeiss, now 17 years old, also took the stand at his father's trial. Joseph testified that on the night of the shooting, his father told him he needed to get ready to leave the house. At the time he said this, Joseph testified that his father was holding a Walmart bag in his hand. At the time, Joseph said he believed that his father was just taking him out to a job site, as Paul would often leave the house late at night for work. Then, according to Joseph, his father asked him to leave his cell phone at the house before they left. Although Joseph found this request strange, he complied. Joseph told the jury that he and his father got into his vehicle, but they did not go to a job site. Joseph said that his father had driven them to Idaho Street in Belgrade, where Lauren DeWeiss lived. He said they sat in the car for about a half an hour, and then he said his father put on some gloves and a mask that looked like a squid. Paul then told his son to put on a knit mask that had a fake beard, as well as a pair of rubber gloves. Joseph testified that he was confused, having no idea what was happening. According to a 2019 KHLA.com article by Cody Boyer, Joseph said on the stand, I didn't know what was going on until he pulled out the pistol, and I got extremely scared. The Black Ruger handgun, according to Joseph, was one that he recognized as he and his father had fired the gun at a firing range before. Joseph said his father kicked in the back door of Lauren's house with one kick, and then he forced Joseph inside. After looking around the bottom floor, Joseph said that he and his father went upstairs. He said his father opened the first door he saw upstairs, and a woman, who was not Lauren, asked, Who the fuck are you? Joseph said his father responded to the woman, saying, Who the fuck are you? And then he shot her numerous times. At that time, according to Joseph, the two of them moved to another bedroom, which belonged to Lauren. He said he heard his stepmother make a sound, like a terrified gasp, and then, he said, his father shot her multiple times. Joseph said his father then ordered him to lead them back out of the house. He said his father stopped to get beer on their drive home. Joseph testified that he felt sick as if he was going to throw up. When they arrived home that night, Joseph said his father told him to get undressed, take a shower, and to dispose of the gun and ammunition. Joseph said he complied with his father's orders and threw the pistol in a pond very close to their house. He said he made more than one trip to the pond that evening, getting rid of more evidence each time. Joseph said that his father told him he would be in a great deal of trouble if he didn't get the story straight regarding what happened that night. He said his father told him to say that they had all been watching TV together the night of the murder. When police pulled Paul over the next morning, Joseph went along with his father's story because according to him, he feared his father. On cross-examination, the defense pushed back on Joseph the same way they had with Natalie. The defense claimed that Detective Cop, who had interviewed Joseph, framed his interview in a way that Joseph could save himself if he pointed the finger at his father. 
Joseph denied this claim. Detective Kopp was also questioned by the defense during trial. According to a 2019 KHLA.com article by Cody Boyer, on the stand, Detective Kopp said he told Joseph that because he was young, that he could save him from the burden of lying no matter the outcome. According to the same article by Cody Boyer, Joseph continued his testimony, telling the jury about the relationship he had with his father. I was just trying to survive. He'd always check up on me, see where I was. It was always in a threatening way. Joseph said on the stand that his father and Lauren often fought in public and that he saw his father install GPS tracking devices on Lauren's car after he caught her cheating. Gallatin County Sheriff's Deputy Matthew Boxmeyer found audio and video recordings on Paul's cell phone during the investigation. On one of the recordings, Paul was heard saying that if Lauren stopped cheating, he would not hit her anymore. One of the videos recovered was of Paul sobbing and pleading with Lauren to get back together with him. According to a 2019 Bozeman Daily Chronicle online article by Freddie Moneris, Paul said on the selfie video, I'm sorry I was so angry. I have a new perspective now. One video in particular was very damning for Paul. Of the numerous videos which Paul shot from his cell phone, one of them was played in court for the jury. On the witness stand, Deputy Dan Mayland described for the jury what was happening during the video. According to a 2019 KBZK.com article by Cody Boyer, Mayland said about the video, about halfway through the audio, the defendant starts threatening her, referring to Lauren, threatening to kill her. He says very specifically, I think at least five times, I'm going to kill you. Detective Sergeant Dustin Lensing took the stand and told the jury that not long after the shootings, a gun was found by a couple who had been walking near Trout Meadow Pond in Bozeman. The couple turned the gun into law enforcement, who then ran the serial number. Lensing said on the stand that the serial number on the recovered gun was confirmed to be from a gun that Paul DeWeiss had purchased. During his numerous interviews with detectives, Paul provided a list of all the guns he owned. The gun that was found in the pond, however, had never made that list. Although Paul told detectives that he had only gone to Lauren's home on one occasion, cell phone location documents indicated that he had been to Lauren's house on multiple occasions. Paul DeWeiss was not going to let the prosecution control the narrative. He decided to take the stand in his own defense. Paul told the jury that prior to him and his family moving to Bozeman, Montana, he and Lauren had a loving relationship. On the stand, he said that his children, who had testified against him, were capable and intelligent, and that he shared a close relationship with each of them. Paul said that in 2013, he and his family got into their RV, left Florida, and enjoyed a road trip visiting many other states before they finally settled in the backyard of a friend in Plains, Montana in 2015. Paul said that when Lauren was promoted, he didn't want to move to Bozeman, but he agreed in order to support his wife. Paul told the jury that after moving to Bozeman, his marriage began to unravel, and that he and Lauren were arguing a lot. During one argument, according to Paul, 
He hit Lauren ten times in the arm, but, he claimed, he wasn't looking and thought at the time that he was hitting the seat of the car, not Lauren's arm. On the witness stand, Paul managed to stay fairly calm until the prosecution asked him about the audio and video footage found on his phone. According to a 2019 KTVH.com article by Cody Boyer, when confronted with the cell phone footage, Paul grew agitated and his voice got louder as he said, I never threatened my wife in any way like that. I'm not that kind of person. I respect and I loved her strength and her individuality. Paul said that he was merely expressing his emotions at the time the cell phone videos were taken and that he did not mean what he said on them. On the stand, Paul denied going to Audrea Butler's house on the evening in question and denied shooting Ashley and Lauren. He said on the stand that his memory of the day wasn't very good because he had fallen asleep off and on because he was sick at the time. Paul said that on the evening of January 16th of 2018, he fell asleep around 9 p.m. and woke up around midnight. He said that after waking up, he decided to drive to a convenience store to buy beer. He said that when he arrived home, he drank a few beers, talked with his kids, was on his phone for a while, and then he went to bed around 2 in the morning. According to a 2019 KBZK.com article by Cody Boyer, Paul claimed the killer was still out there and said, I have been falsely accused here. I didn't do it. As the trial was taking place, Paul DeWeiss was charged with assault on a peace officer after he allegedly punched an officer in the detention center where he was being held. Although Paul claimed self-defense, footage from a surveillance camera showed that Paul punched the officer unprovoked. Paul would also be charged with witness tampering as the trial took place. In their closing arguments, the prosecution reminded the jury that Paul had threatened to kill Lauren and carried out that threat the evening of January 6th of 2018. In their closing argument, the defense said that the prosecution had not provided solid evidence to prove that Paul DeWeiss had abused Lauren. In addition, the defense told the jury that no DNA evidence was recovered and that there could be alternative suspects. Although the defense never presented any other suspects during trial, the defense told the jury that given these circumstances, there was reasonable doubt in this case. On December 10th of 2019, after deliberating for less than two and a half hours, the jury of 12 returned their verdict, finding Paul DeWeiss guilty of attempted deliberate homicide and use of a firearm. On the additional charges of witness tampering and assault on a peace officer, Paul was scheduled to stand trial at a later date. After the verdict was read aloud, audible gasps from the courtroom gallery could be heard. During Paul's sentencing hearing, in her impact statement, Ashley Van Hemert spoke directly to Paul DeWeiss about how his violence has affected her life. According to a 2020 KBZK.com article by Cody Boyer, Ashley told Paul, I've learned to live with only the use of my right hand and arm, so I've had to learn how to dress all over again. She continued saying to her attacker, Mr. DeWeiss, thank you for looking at me. It is well with my soul what you have done to me. With that, 
Ashley forgave Paul DeWeiss for what he had done to her and gave him a Bible with a poem inside. Ashley's brother, Terrell, took the opportunity to speak directly to his sister's attacker, saying, You tried to kill my sister. You did a pretty darn good job of trying to do it. She was on the ground for almost nine hours, wondering if she was going to die. What do you think that felt like? Again, Paul DeWeiss was not going to allow other people to control the narrative. For nearly an hour, Paul DeWeiss spoke during his sentencing hearing. According to a KBZK.com article by Cody Boyer, Paul said, I feel for Ashley. She's a special lady. He went on to say, The prosecutor kind of makes the story better every time I hear it. I've never had anybody accuse me of having trouble with my temper. Paul said during his long and drawn-out statement that his children, detectives, his wife, and the prosecutors lied at his trial. According to a Bozeman Daily Chronicle online article by Freddie Moneris, Paul said, Justice was not served. I was lynched in the Montana tradition. After all statements were made during the sentencing hearing held on February 4th of 2020, Judge Holly Brown sentenced Paul DeWeiss to a combined 220 years to be served in the Montana State Prison. Paul's sentence included no possibility for parole. In Gallatin County, Montana, domestic violence is growing at a rapid pace. Shockingly, statistics indicate that one in five people in Gallatin Valley have fallen victim to domestic violence. Shelters such as Haven are fighting for victims of domestic violence and for better responses to it. If you or anyone you know are a victim of domestic abuse, help is available by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or on their website at thehotline.org. A GoFundMe account to help Ashley Van Hemert with her medical bills is still active today as she continues to require ongoing medical treatment and devices for her injuries. I will include a link to Ashley's GoFundMe account in the episode notes. Paul DeWeiss's son, Joseph, now lives in Florida with his mother, Maria Frazier. Natalie DeWeiss, who's an adult now, may also be living in Florida. Paul and Lauren's young daughter, Jennifer, began living with Lauren DeWeiss's parents after her death. Ashley Van Hemert has established a GoFundMe account on Jennifer's behalf. I will also include a link to Jennifer's GoFundMe account in the episode notes. Paul DeWeiss currently resides at the Gallatin County Jail in Bozeman, Montana. His status is listed as alt-secure, meaning that he's part of an adult community program where offenders are placed in secure care facilities as an alternative to incarceration. He is still awaiting trial for charges of witness tampering and assault on a peace officer. Paul DeWeiss has pleaded not guilty to both charges. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now 
and tell a friend about Murderish, I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like more information about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched by Gina Mazzolini and written by me. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources, including, but not limited to, news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes, someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather this information, which I draw from to help tell these stories. Thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Is listening to true crime podcasts all the time getting you down, but you just can't stop? Try listening to Bloody Murder. We're an Australian comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known murder cases from Australia and around the globe. We use black comedy as a means to tell horrifying true crime stories. But our humour is respectful and never at the expense of victims or their loved ones. Our episodes cover everything from Australian gangland figures like Chopper Reed to black widows and women who kill disputes between neighbours that turn to murder identity theft killings bushrangers and serial killers you won't have heard covered elsewhere. We get straight into the case with no banter or chit-chat beforehand. That's because the podcast is about true crime, not what we had for lunch. Our fresh, well-researched episodes are released every Monday. Bloody Murder has been nominated for four Australian Podcast Awards. We've been going for over three years now. So we have loads of episodes for you to binge. You can listen to Bloody Murder on Spotify and any of your favourite podcatchers. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.